You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We've come to a bit of a crossroads for SpyCast. We want to keep improving the quality of the program, and hopefully you've noticed, and at least I think the quality has been steadily improving over time, but we still want to keep SpyCast free. Our two AV guys, Memphis Vaughn and Mike Mincy, have worked miracles of what technology they've been given, but we want to get better. And unfortunately, that takes funding. So SpyCast will now be sponsored. And look, this kind of freaked me out in the beginning. I didn't want to come here and be a shill for some company I didn't use or believe in. And so I was very happy to learn that our first sponsor would be Mack Weldon. You'll hear more about them a little bit later, but if you've never heard of Mack Weldon, it's a clothing company that is looking to reinvent men's basics and how we shop for them. Talking about t-shirts, undershirts, socks, underwear, and hoodies. So welcome to the SpyCast family, Mack Weldon. We appreciate your support of our podcast. So we're joined today by Barry Meyer, who's a reporter for the New York Times and has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and is a two-time winner of the George Polk Award. His reporting at the Times has concentrated on the intersection of business, medicine, and the public's health. During his career, he's exposed the dangers of various drugs and medical products, including a defective heart device and a generation of flawed artificial hips. He was the first journalist to shed a national spotlight on the abuse of OxyContin. Mr. Myers authored an ebook, A World of Hurt, Fixing Pain, Medicine's Biggest Mistake, which was released in 2013, and Painkiller, A Wonder Drug's Trail of Addiction and Death, which was released in 2003. He is now the author of Missing Man, The American Spy Who Vanished in Iran, a book about the disappearance of and subsequent search for former FBI agent and CIA contract worker Bob Levinson. So, Barry, thank you for talking to us here at SpyCast. Thanks so much, Vince. I'm happy to be here. So, I, I talked to you a little bit before we, we started recording about how I, I have a bit of a personal relationship with this story. Uh, Bob Levinson was from South Florida, uh, and so am I, uh, as our listeners who have been paying attention for a little while know. Uh, and, I, and I remember seeing this story on local news as, as uh, something that... Uh, transcended this national story of a, a local guy who uh, celebrated FBI agent who had gone missing. Uh, so how long have you been working on this story? It's not something you just picked up recently. Exactly. I stumbled over this story in the fall of 2007. I picked up a copy of a newspaper and there was an article in it that basically reported that a former FBI agent turned private investigator had disappeared on an Iranian island while investigating cigarette smuggling for a corporate client, a big tobacco company. What really caught my attention was the fact that he had gone there, Bob had gone there to meet 
an escaped American assassin, a person by the name of Dawood Salahuddin, who had assassinated an ex-aide to the Shah of Iran in 1980 near Washington, D.C., and escaped to Iran. And I thought to myself, wow, I love mystery stories and espionage stories and suspense stories. Here's a chance to go to Dubai, to Iran, get the New York Times to pick up the tab for my travels. <laughs> and, uh, you know, great. It sounded fantastic. So whenever we talk about uh, books about intelligence, we have authors on here all the time. The question I have to ask is, with intelligence being the way that it is, it's sometimes difficult to find sources for these kind of books. It's not like doing political science or an economics where you can kind of find open sources. People are very uh, willing to talk to you. With intelligence, things aren't necessarily that way. And, and as you source this book, and, and at the back of your book, you do a great essay talking about your sources, uh, you weren't able to get any kind of uh, comment from FBI, from CIA, nothing from the White House necessarily about what you were writing. How difficult was it to put together the necessary sources for this book? Well, I sort of lucked out. You know, I was a newbie when I came to this. I had no experience covering really intelligence or law enforcement. But uh, in late 2007, early 2008, I got to meet Bob Levinson's wife, Christine, a lawyer that worked uh, with their family, and a uh, retired television television producer who would act as sort of as the go-between to set up this meeting in Iran for Bob. They were, they were sort of twisting in the wind, particularly the family. Um, they hadn't been contacted by the CIA. They felt the FBI was sort of dragging its feet mm -hmm. uh, where the investigation was going, and they wanted a reporter to kind of look at things, to maybe you know, prod the government into taking action. So I said to them, you know, the only way I can make sense about of this is by looking at Bob's files. So they turned over all his files to me. And at that point in time, I didn't need CIA sources. Right. I had all the intelligence, all the reports that Bob was sending into the agency, as well as his emails, as well as emails between him and the analysts at the agency that was effectively running him. So as an award-winning journalist, are you worried that you're really only getting one side? And let me, let me preface this by saying, or are you content that you've given them the chance to commit? Because you talked about the fact that you reached out to FBI and CIA and you said, do you want to talk about this? And they said no, or they just ignored you altogether. So is there a possibility, are you worried in any respect that there is another side of this that you're not seeing? Well, I'm not worried that I got things wrong, per okay. se. I spoke at length with FBI officials off the record, so you know I have a really good sense that they feel that everything related to the FBI uh, that is in the book is accurate. Whereas, where the CIA is concerned, I actually have a different concern, and, and that is that the CIA has been very successful in shielding its version of the story. Mm -hmm. It's not like I didn't try to yeah. get its version of the story. In fact, I, they wouldn't even allow me to visit Langley when I was reporting the book. Um, my big concern is that there, were, there is an aspect to this story that both the Levinson family and the American public deserves to know about that the CIA has been very successful in keeping under wraps. Well, let's not bury the lead. Let's jump right in and talk about the mission on which Bob disappeared because he was on a Iranian-controlled island off of Dubai called Kish. What was he doing there? Because the story that you talked about when you read that article in the beginning is, is the nonsense story. He was actually there for a very different purpose. Correct. Uh, so Bob was hired as a contractor uh, his experience as an FBI agent was in areas like Russian organized crime, Colombian cartels, 
But in 2006, as I'm sure you know, the agency as well as the rest of the United States government was very focused on Iran. This was an era when we were uh, tightening uh, restrictions mm -hmm. on trade with Iran. We wanted to know if they were going to violate the embargo, and if so, how. So Bob was given a number of priorities by this analytical group that he was working for, and number one was Iran, and number two was Hugo Chavez, uh, then Venezuelan president. Um, and so he, even before going to Kish, was going around trying to gather information about Iranian money laundering, about uh, possible embargo violations, and um, so he went to Canada, he went to Istanbul, and then he had this possibility of meeting with this individual in Iran to hopefully develop him, or what he hoped was going to be the beginning of a relationship where he could develop him as an agency source inside Iran. And this team within the CIA, the illicit finance group, um, was pretty important at the time because the CIA had no human intelligence assets inside Iran, uh, at least none that we know about. Uh, and so they really turned to this group to do a lot of the heavy lifting of discovering how to put further sanctions on Iran. I mean, how to stop these kinds of arms deals that were trying to go around the current sanctions there too. And that's where Bob comes into play a little bit. So I, I'm a little worried about how this is going to come out because in no way am I trying to blame the victim here. And Bob Levinson is, is truly a victim. But from what you read about in the book, it almost appeared as though Bob was kind of a, addicted to the action, was kind of looking for something to do. It, he wanted to be an FBI agent from when a little kid, he saw a movie, and he kind of seemed to miss the thrill. The way you lay out his personality in this book is that he was kind of looking for a way to get involved. And the emails you talk, I mean, you email after email after email where he's like, give me the money, let me go do this, let me go do this, let me go do this. Um, and the, the issue I potentially have here, again, I'm not, hopefully Bob Levinson is still alive and kicking and he is being held absolutely unjustly by, by Iran, if that's the case. But everyone at the time knew in the U.S. government understood that people in Iran, especially Iranian intelligence, didn't consider someone to be ex-anything if they had worked for the U.S. government at any point. So the idea that he was an ex-FBI agent working for a tobacco company, if that's the cover story, People there always considered you still in the game. It was this something that you, you, you took into account or that you thought he should have taken into account when he went to areas controlled by Iran? I think you characterized Bob as a personality correctly. Bob desperately wanted to get back into the game. Uh, he wanted to be a part of the action. He wanted to be relevant. I mean, he had gotten to that point of, in his life where, you know, sort of time was running out. His, his area of areas of expertise were no longer that important mm -hmm. to the government. And so he had to adapt. If he wanted to be back in the game, he had to, you know, start learning about areas about which he knew nothing. And he really knew nothing about Iran. That was obvious to me in going through his files and in talking to people that knew him. I guess, you know, he had come to a point where he had taken risks before in his life. He had done kind of crazy things. There's, there's this really heartbreaking memo that he writes where he's kind of asking a friend almost to talk him out of going to Iran right. because he'd never taken, you know, was, was it really worth the risk? And I think he decided personally that it was worth the risk. Um, that's a decision he made mm -hmm. himself. 
Um, there's really no one else to blame for his situation than Bob. Bob was a grown-up. He made a decision on his own. So swinging around to really the other question you're asking is, well, should we really care about that? What obligation do we have to Bob? Uh, does the U.S. government have any obligation to Bob? I believe that it does, and the reason is, is that the U.S. government was, the CIA was encouraging him to collect this information. Right, absolutely. They could have at any point in time said to him, hey, Bob, we see this report. We know you were in Istanbul. You know you. We know you were doing this co covert thing, where you were meeting with uh, Iranian agents there. And hey, look, you're not an agent. You're not a spy. You're not James Bond. So hey, brother, stand down. Stop this. This is potentially dangerous. And so for me, the problem becomes not so much what Bob was doing, but the fact that he was being encouraged to take right. risks. And if he took a risk that went beyond what they expected him to take, they maybe should have been aware of that beforehand. So I want to take a quick, let's call it two-minute break, to tell the listeners about Mack Weldon. I've never been a person who's paid a whole lot of attention to the basics when it comes to clothing. I'm pretty a simple guy. Most of the time I buy undershirts, socks, and underwear in large packages of about 10, and I'm usually annoyed if the whole thing costs more than about 10 bucks. Well, I obviously didn't know what I was missing. It's clear to me now that no matter what brands you've been buying in the past, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing now and will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you'll ever wear. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. And I'm not kidding about simple shopping. I, I'm about as lazy when it comes when it comes to shopping. But from beginning to end, it took me less than five minutes on their website to order a variety of very cool products. My favorite is they have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They don't stink. So if you spend any time in Washington in the summer, you know that we are located approximately about five miles from the surface of the sun. And those of us who have to dress up a little bit end up sweating like a burned American spy in Moscow being chased by the KGB. Haha. But the silver line uses ecstatic antimicrobial technology, which has been proven by U.S. Special Forces, NASA, and Olympic athletes under the most extreme conditions. Mack Weldon also wants you to be comfortable, but if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. About a perfect guarantee as you can get. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. Again, MacWeldon.com, and you can get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. So now in an ideal world, I come up with some witty segue to get us back into talking about Iran and talking about Bob Levinson, but... I really don't have one here. So let's jump right back into the questions. There's an interesting dynamic that you, you talk about in the book that any, a lot of people listening will understand if they're a current agency or ex-agency. And this is the, the, the dynamic that exists at Langley between the analysts and the operations guys, uh, guys and gals now. Um, and Bob was working for an analysis group, right? The illicit finance group was a group of analysts and he was being sent or encouraged to do some of these operational missions by a group of analysts. Uh, and a lot of people reading this are going to, especially those who are former or current agency, will go, well, there you go. Right? If this was being run by an operations team, this never would have happened. So do you blame, or blame's the wrong word, do you put the responsibility on this analytical team, uh, this woman, Anne, who was his close friend who was working inside analysis, or the agency as a whole? Uh, because I, I think agency-wide, you have people come back and say exactly that. If, this was be, if he was being run by the operations team, he never would have gotten near 
Iranian territory. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, I think he, if he, if this was an operations mission, it never would have happened. Yeah. I mean, who would have ever sent a, you know, a big old ex FBI agent with a Jewish last name to yeah. Iran? I mean, that, yeah. I, I'd like to think that's not how the CIA works. <laughs> I have great faith that it doesn't work that way. Most of the time, it doesn't. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know. Someone mentioned something to me sometime about the book. They had read the book, and, and, and they had sort of a very salient thought about it, which was that, you know, there wasn't any, you know, you, you couldn't, like, everyone wants to blame someone. It's yeah. his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. Uh, they said, you know, the, the thing that really came through to them in the book was that kind of this fault, it was not anyone's specific fault, but it was the fault of everyone's blind spots and expectations and assumptions and they all kind of conspired together to create this tragedy right. you know I, I truly believe that the people on the analytical side had they known that Bob was going to Iran would have definitely said forget it don't do right. it pull back but they kind of let him run loose yeah and they reaped the whirlwind of that afterwards right i mean this is a time for for the listeners out there who don't remember i mean we do have some college students and high school students who listen and they that's 10 years ago for them so maybe they're not paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on in the world but this is a time when george w bush had essentially ended any potential rapprochement with the iranians by calling them part of the axis of evil this is when Ahmadinejad became president of Iran. This is when they began to re the their enrichment program again, um, where force, our forces in Iraq were being killed by IEDs that were not created by Iran, but a lot of training was going on by Republican Guard or intelligence forces about Shiite paramilitary groups. This was not a good time to be someone with a Jewish last name visiting Iran. It was a great time for the CIA to try to collect information about Iran. And the idea that he was going, he at least told them that he was interested in this kind of Iran angle. And that should have been enough for them to say, Bob, stop. You know, that that is not your area of expertise. That is getting into very dangerous areas. Yes, I mean, we were at that point in time a decade ago very close to coming to war with Iran. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a, this phrase, the Twilight War, where we've, you know, over the decades kind of fought a silent war through intermediaries uh, with Iran. But we were actually getting close to the point of actual warfare. Um, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the last few weeks before Bob's disappearance, uh, you know, there's this memo that he wrote in in late in the in early 2007 uh, to the illicit finance group to its head and in it he says I'm going to Dubai for a private client while I'm in Dubai I plan to meet with someone who could provide me with information about Iranian money laundering and you know one would think at that point in time he's going to Dubai Dubai itself is a dangerous place people can get snatched in Dubai not only says that I'm going to Dubai and a nearby island. Right. Well, Kish is a nearby island. It may not have been the island that registered with them when they saw that memo, but you think it would have been incumbent upon them to say, look, Bob, uh, we really want to know some more specifics about this trip. If you're getting anywhere near Iran, we don't even want you monkeying around in Dubai. Right. Uh, so, you know, it raises the question of, 
to what degree were people there really paying attention to what Bob was doing? And if they were paying attention at all, why weren't, why weren't they responding more aggressively? Well, yeah, I mean, you look at the emails, and, and other than the consideration about getting more money, and this is a time when the CIA didn't have a lot of funding, this is right before sequestration kicked in. Other than that, it was very much go get them, go get them. We love what you're giving us. You're doing great. Continue on champ kind of um, atmosphere in these emails. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that really struck me is that you go through all the emails, and I, I hopefully have seen all of them. God knows there may be a few lying around that I haven't seen. But there is not a single email, apart from saying, hey, we're out of money, so cool your jets until mm-hmm. we get more money. There is not a single email saying, A, we're unhappy with what you're doing, B, you're investigating stuff that you shouldn't be investigating, or three, you're going to places where you shouldn't be going. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of, you're, you've reached the line between, you know, working for analysts and working for operations. So pull back, brother, stop it, step down. This is not your area. There's not a hint of that. Right. And, and whether people want to have arguments or conversations about how he got himself into trouble, there's very little way to argue anything about how badly the investigation started about his disappearance. The FBI investigation about an ex-agent missing in Iran was scandalously lax at first. I mean, there's no other really way to describe it. I mean, months into the investigation, they still hadn't contacted everybody he had talked to in the couple weeks before he disappeared. Uh, it was uh, it was frightening to me to discover that. You know, I grew up watching, you know, all FBI TV yeah. shows. I had, you know, pretty, you know, high opinion of the FBI. So after I got Bob's files and emails, I did what I thought a journalist and investigator would do. I started contacting people to find out what he had told them on the way to Kish, what they had learned about what he was doing. And literally to a person, none of those people have been contacted by the FBI. Hmm. More importantly, a number of former agents and private investigators who knew Bob, had worked with Bob, reached back to the FBI and said, hey guys, you know, he's one of your own. We're here to help. Let us know what we can do. We might have some information for you. They didn't hear back either. So the FBI... Bungling would be an accurate word. It would be maybe too gentle a word. Um, They blew a major clue at the start of the investigation. Uh, They ignored obvious leads. And it makes you wonder why. Was it just incompetence on their part? Did they not want to do battle with the CIA? Did someone within the CIA kind of push back hard enough? to kind of make them back down. That's part of the story that I'd love to know more about myself. Right. We, that may be a while before we, we know that information. Uh, and, and really, things lumbered along for a while. Uh, but somewhat in their defense, I'm not really defending them. That had to be confusing because Iran actually arrested a lot of people who weren't spies and claimed they were spying. And then here's somebody who actually was working, at least as a contract worker, for CIA, who was at least we assumed to be arrested, and they, there's no word whatsoever about him. So it was kind of flipping things on its head. Um, but nothing happened, of course, until, again, my Miami-South Florida connections peaked up at this, until Senator Bill Nelson's office gets involved. Uh, and Nelson at the time was uh, only, as you described in the book, and only known around the country as the sitting senator other than John Glenn, who had been to space. Right. Uh, but he, I've met him, and he... When he decides on something, he 
decides on something. And, and so the, the power of his office made, makes a real difference here. Yeah, he was sort of the, the Levinson family's hero yeah. in this. Uh, so the backdrop to how that all happened uh, is that, you know, once um, Chris, Bob's wife, sent all his work files to the offices of David McGee, the lawyer, uh, I started going through them. And we started going through them together. And I started plucking out all this documentation uh, showing the depth of Bob's involvement with the CIA, the email traffic between him and his friend Ann Jablonski, who was the CIA analyst. Uh, and these documents eventually made their way to Senator Nelson. And during a closed-door hearing of the uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, he confronted a top, uh, top CIA official who claimed, hey, we didn't know anything about this. No one told us about this. So an internal investigation was launched within the CIA that eventually led to the ouster of three top analysts and, and you know, sort of minor punishments against other people. It was very striking because during the course of this, um, CIA analysts claimed to the Senate Select Intelligence Committee that uh, they had never read Bob's report. They had, you know, they had come in, they considered them of such little intelligent value, they had basically thrown them into cardboard boxes. Mm -hmm. This is seven months after an American has disappeared. Right. Seven months after someone who worked for the CIA has disappeared, and these folks are pretending that they care so little about what he might know, what he might say, that they haven't even looked into his case. Well, and then from the analyst, that's absolutely ridiculous. And again, I don't want to sound like a government show, but you know, when when Steve Caps and then later when Michael Hayden says, "I've never heard of this," that's in this case it's almost believable because maybe at that point they probably had heard of it, but we they probably had never heard of him up until that point because this was not something that seemed to get outside of the analytical shop, especially the illicit finance shop. Because as I think of it, we talked about this earlier. If the ops guys heard about this, they would have gone berserk because analysts aren't supposed to be running operations. And and so I, I can, you know, look, and the conspiracy theorists out there, and most of the time they're halfway right when they talk about, of course they knew about it. They're just pretending they're the director of the CIA. This is one of the times where I'm like, yeah, Mike Hayden probably didn't know a whole lot about what was going on. I there. think, I mean, I've never spoken to Mike Hayden yeah. about it. I try to. Uh, same with Steve Capps, but I do take them at their word. Uh, I would sort of kind of um, move to a middle ground. Mm -hmm. Uh, between total conspiracy and everybody's hands are clean. And it's very difficult for me to believe that middle managers within the analytical division did not know about this right. after Bob disappeared. I'm not saying they knew about it beforehand, right. but the idea that you know the FBI would come to Langley four days after his disappearance and say, what's up with this guy Bob? Was he working for you? And that word would not have made its way around the agency, certainly around the analytical division, and people would have made inquiries and people would have looked at whatever electronic traffic there was, whatever records there was. Um, the idea that, that Ann Jablonski, this the analyst, would have kept this all to herself right. and sat on this, in my view, is absurd. And she, in fact, says that she alerted her higher-ups as to what was going on, and I have every reason to believe her. There's an interesting anecdote in the book about an attempt at a diplomatic solution. This is where uh, Bob's wife, Chris, his Chris's sister, Susie, and their son, Dan, actually went to Tehran to try to talk uh, to the Iranians to give up uh, the, the holding Bob Levinson. Uh, and 
uh, it kind of made me chuckle. Like it, I, it's not supposed to, because of how horrible this must have been for this family and still continues to be. But they, they, the idea that they went inside the room, their hotel room, and, and wondered, you know, they couldn't find any tissues. And then when they went back out and came back in, and there were just boxes of tissues right. around the hotel room, just demonstrating that Iranian intelligence had bugged the room from top to bottom. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was pretty. I mean, what was so extraordinary and heartbreaking about that trip was that, you know, Chris, who I think was probably in her mid-50s at the time she took this trip, uh, she had never been out of the United States before. So here is a very lovely person. She's in shock. Her husband has disappeared. The government has sort of abandoned him in her eyes. She's going out to try to find out some information on her own. And her first trip outside the United States is trying to follow the footsteps that her husband took. And yeah, I mean, the, as I kind of detailed in the book, the, her treatment by the Iranian government was appalling. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did not even make any pretense to be sympathetic right. towards her. When she went to meet with some office uh, minister of something or other there, uh, he treats her rudely. He basically says, well, you know, Bob, we know that Bob was trying to pay this boat captain to take him from right. Kish Island to the mainland, and Bob was making telephone calls from the back of a taxi cab, and all this nonsense. And, you know, they didn't even have the decency to, you know, maintain some veneer of civility. Right. And that happens again later on in the book when they go to the UN and they meet the ambassador there, who also treats them cruelly and rudely and with not the slightest trace of civility. So while, while he's been gone, there have been some clues that have come in. In 2007, there was an email that was sent uh, purporting to be Bob, but it was dismissed by the FBI as being a fake until a 2010 email from a relatively similar email address came with actual proof of life that, that Bob was, was alive. Uh, and so it, it forced the FBI to look back at the 2007 email, which three years had passed at this point, and realize, oops, we, we missed something significant here. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, at the time that that email came in, people were kind of startled, and I was startled when I started looking at the email. Uh, that that the FBI had not investigated it. I mean, it seemed to me that the names on the on the email, and just to let your listeners know, um, so the, this email went to Bob's wife, to Ira Silverman, the retired television producer who set up the go-between, acted as the go-between to set up this meeting on Kish, and four other people, two of them journalists, two of them lawyers. These are all people who were in a position to publicize this email, to right. get the word out. Bob traveled with a device that had hundreds of names in it, you know, uh, other private investigators, clients of his, former government people. So the obvious question is, why did they choose these four names? Right. Well, you know, why did they choose four people who shared these similarities? And the FBI came up with this kind of cockamamie theory that, well, maybe someone was walking behind Bob when he was in an internet cafe. They stole the names off the screen. They don't make sense to us. And it just, you know, smacked to me of laziness, of lack of um, initiative, of, you know, it was kind of pathetic right. when you boil it down. They did not even take the time to go out and personally interview 
the people who received the emails and said, you know, to say to them, well, why do you think your name was on that email? What was your relationship with Bob? If your name was on this email, is there something about his situation now that he was trying to communicate to us right. by putting your name on that email? So, you know, the basic things that a journalist would do, these folks wouldn't do. And it just made me feel that, well, it's nice to be an FBI agent because they would have never gotten a job at a place like the New York Times. <laughs> well, I mean, even things like, is there anything in the body of the email that kind of jumps out to you, like a way of phrasing right. or a word or right. anything? Um, but when the 2010 email finally came, one thing I really loved about how you describe this in the book is, this is when the FBI started getting into the, the actual doing their jobs. And you do a fantastic job in showing some of the, the techniques that the FBI uses to take apart these kind of videos, because they do send a video along with it. And the techniques are uh, something that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. And I think uh, that part of the book, I was, I even dog-eared it, and I said, <laughs> okay, this is a really good way of showing people how modern technology can be used. Right. Uh, right. We call this open source intelligence, right. when there's a video online or, or social media, and how intelligence agencies, or in this case, a criminal justice agency, can take apart these videos and listen to background noises. And sometimes people have seen it on like a CSI show or something like this, but you do a really good job of laying out how the FBI deconstructed this video and what conclusions they were able to draw from it. It, it is like a CSI kind of scene. And, and you know, so sound is very important. Uh, not so much for what it, you know, not, they're trying to pick up background noise. Right. They're trying to figure out, is, is there language being spoken? Are there sounds coming from the street? Is there a sound of an airplane? So maybe he's being held near an airport. Well, this had a soundtrack layered uh, over the background, which was, you know, some music from a tribal area. Mm -hmm. so it turned out to be a wedding song. And so that was obviously put down to mask any background noises. Then there is the actual message itself. You know, what were the words that Bob was saying? What was the message that was being conveyed through those words? So they look for clues in that. In his message, he uses the term, I've, I've worked for the government for 33 years. In fact, he had only worked for the government for 28 years, five of them as a DEA agent and 23 of them as an FBI agent. So then the question was, well, why did they use, why did they use in the term 33 mm -hmm. years? And that might mean that, well, I've had a relationship with the, with the CIA during that time. Uh, you know, it was his physical demeanor. He's sitting there, there's nothing in the background, there are no jihadist banners, there are right. no political statements. But his hands are in front of him. They're not moving. They're not, they're not going anywhere. So it seemed like his hands were bound in front of them. And they also had doctors examine the tape. You know, Bob had both diabetes. They had, he had uh, a heart condition. And um, so they're looking at the tape from a medical standpoint to see, well, what is his physical condition? How is he faring in captivity? And through this, they were attempting to put together a co composite picture of, of how Bob was physically, psychologically, and whether the tape held any clues as to who was holding him or where he was. And, and just to kind of come full circle, what they eventually determined was that the tape was done so professionally. Right. I mean, it's meant to convey the idea that, well, maybe this is like a terrorist group or some Chechen motorcycle gang that's grabbed him and is holding him. 
but the the tape was done so professionally to to result in no clues whatsoever that it really pointed to a governmental intelligence source. Well, you talk in the book about this idea that there were several clues, and normally when you have organizations like a terrorist organization or some kind of organized crime, eventually they're going to make some kind of mistake. That's how you catch people is when they do something dumb, they make a mistake. The criminals that don't get caught are the ones that just don't give you anything to latch on to. But this was done so well. There were no mistakes. There was no, you know, foghorn in the background, like from a TV show. There was nothing that they could latch on to that the conclusion was this has to be a very well-organized government intelligence agency pulling this, or at least a government entity pulling this off. That was the theme that was struck through every clue that came in, be it the uh, videotape, being, be it the subsequent photographs that came in, showing Bob in the, that orange-like jumpsuit, like right. he was a Guantanamo prisoner. Also in the secret talks that are described in the book that, that took place between the U.S. and Iran after the videotape came in to try to get information about Bob. Everything that was fed to the investigators, to the FBI, always, one guy said to me, you know, it all kind of circled back onto itself and went nowhere. It all ended up in a blind alley. Right. I mean, you even talk about the fact that the, the Iranians just kept lying about, they kept, well, we're going to help. Give us information and we'll help. They even said, he's probably held by a terrorist. We've been doing raids against all these terrorist organizations. And that's not hard to check up on. In fact, the U.S. government did. They looked at their satellite imagery intelligence right. and they said, that's not true. We'd be able to see if there were military units running around chasing these uh, terrorist organizations and terrorist camps. And, and so this is where you'll get the most fervent pushback from me in this conversation. You mentioned this in the book, actually, and I, I, I double started and I said, OK, this is to me is is what I want to pull out. Could this entire episode and by that, I mean, going back to taking Bob in the first place, be tradecraft designed to force the U.S into giving up sources and methods and how it spied on Iran, about all these ways of just kind of saying, let's see what they're going to give us in these negotiations, in this search for Levinson. Let's see what they're going to give us and how much, if he's a CIA contract worker, which they may have known before they grabbed him in the first place, what is the CIA going to do to find him? Those are all excellent points. Um, I'm not certain that this was a counterintelligence operation from the start. Okay. You know, I think that may not have been the case. I do believe that it probably evolved into that at some point and maybe early in the going, uh, maybe early when, when the U.S. did not respond to Bob's disappearance in any forceful way and the Iranians thought, hey, we've got like a real spy mm -hmm. on our hands. Uh, certainly after a couple of years with the appearance of the videotape, with the appearance of the photograph, uh, with other kinds of, you know, things that were dangled out there. Uh, I truly believe that uh, it was a counterintelligence operation, that uh, the Iranians were trying to milk as much information out of the, uh, out of the CIA, out of the FBI, uh, about how we spy on right. them. That said, uh, I don't think that necessarily obviates the well, other responsibility not, yeah. that we had to try to figure out how do we get Bob back? You know, how do we convey the message to the Iranians in some way, shape, or form? And I, didn't, I wouldn't know how to do that, but there are people that probably would. Mm. That, you know, this was not a sanctioned mission of the right. United States government. This was an individual who, for whatever reasons, took it upon himself to do this. So when you think about him, understand it that way. 
That, however, would require a huge step. As you know, the last thing that governments like to do is admit that they spy on each other. Right. So I'm, I'm happy to have you as a really accomplished journalist here to ask you about this next question, about the AP story that finally, in this the great segue to this, finally outed him publicly as being a contract worker for the CIA in 2013. Was this the right thing to do for the AP? And I don't need you to criticize another uh, journalistic ent entity in here, but a lot of people were a little upset about this. That could potentially get him killed, uh, could make the Iranians start heavy rhetoric against both the United States and arresting other people for being spies, which is a response that they tend to do over time. Why even write a story like this? Like, why, why does it matter that the American people know that he was a contract worker for CIA? Again, I can't speak to the AP's decision. What I can speak to is our own decision. Right. And uh, myself and my colleagues were very clear in our own minds from the start that we were not going to do anything to jeopardize Bob's life. And obviously, uh, identifying him as a CIA consultant could do that. Uh, I had also made a promise to Chris, his wife, uh, not to do anything that would result in harm right. to Bob. And I felt duty-bound to honor that promise. I think as journalists, you know, you struggle with conflicting things. Uh, does this story amplify some greater thing? Is there some greater issue out here? Does the story of Bob talk about, you know, surveillance that's going on domestically? Uh, some major scandal that is still unfolding within the CIA that needs public airing right. to come out. And I didn't see that with yeah. Bob's story. I, you know, I saw Bob's story as very much related to, to the experience of, of Bob's decision and what had come out of that. So, um, absent a decision by Chris and, and Bob's seven children that they wanted this story out there, that they were willing to face the consequences of having uh, his CIA relationship known, I, I, wouldn't wanna, I wouldn't want anyone to take that decision out of my hand. Right. And so that's where I was with this whole matter. Let's finish off by talking about the nuke deal because that's really where that a lot of this comes to a head to a degree. Um, Iran several times, even going before the the most recent nuclear deal that President Obama reached with Iran, tried to use him as a tool for concessions about not adding new sanctions, about keeping the IAEA from making a report that the Iranians were cheating or going around the sanctions that were already there, um, and Bob's family and some people within the government or former FBI uh, were, were vehement that this was a missed opportunity, perhaps. Um, would this be giving in kind of the whole idea we don't negotiate with terrorists or hostage takers if he was used as a tool, as a, uh, a, a essentially a, a commodity for, for horse trading during these negotiations? I mean, that's a question to me. We're talking about this last Iran deal, very historic if it works. Um, do you ditch entire de or derail an entire historic deal for one man? I know if it was my wife or, or if I'm if I'm sitting in Chris Levinson's shoes, I'd say hell yeah, right? Right. That's that's more important than a deal that may not work and a lot of people don't like. But as as U.S. government, as the foreign policy entities, as, as President Obama, um, is this something that slows you down? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that 
foreign policy often trumps the lives of individuals. Yeah. I mean, you know, war is probably the greatest example of that. So in terms of the Iranian nuclear deal, um, you know, I can understand the decisions that the Obama administration made. Um, nonetheless, I think they've also used that deal as a way to not do things that they ought to be doing okay. at this juncture. For example, you know, in the book, there's a lot of documentation pointing to knowledge or potential knowledge amongst high-ranking Iranian officials about Bob's situation. You know, it's everyone from the uh, from Iran's ambassador to France to the son of the intelligence advisor to Ayatollah uh, Khomeini to uh, former President Rasanjani. Mm. Uh, and that material should be aired out now. There is no reason for our government to protect Iranians. Yes, we could go ahead and, and make the Iranian nuclear deal, but that the idea that we would protect Iranians who were involved in the capture, the torture, and the potential death of right. an American is absolutely unacceptable to me. Do you, do you believe, and this is a personal opinion I'm throwing out asking, do you believe when Lisa Monaco, who worked at the White House, when John Kerry was Secretary of State, when uh, you know, Jay Carney, the White House uh, press secretary, when they say we're still trying, we're still looking, we're still trying to get him back, do you believe that it's still a priority of the U.S. government to get Bob Levinson back? I'll only believe that when President Obama or Lisa Monaco or John Kerry starts disclosing what this government knows about Iranian involvement in Bob's case. When they have the honesty and the courage and the integrity to put that information out in the public sector, I will feel that they have done everything they can to get Bob back. So we'd like to thank our great new sponsor, Mac Weldon, for joining the SpyCast family. And remember, you can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the promo code SPYCAST. And this is worthwhile, guys. I, look, again, I don't want to be a shill for a company I don't like or I don't care about. Mac Weldon is the real deal. And get 20% off in a perfect guarantee using the promo code SPYCAST. We're joined by Barry Meyer, who is the author of a incredibly interesting new book called Missing Man, The American Spy Who Vanished in Iran. Barry, thank you for taking the time to talk. Thanks to so much, Vance. I really appreciate it. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. <laughs>